0: Good morning. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, worship team. If you would turn to Romans chapter 8 again. As I've mentioned before, uh, Romans is considered by many people to be the Himalayas of the Bible. It's the best and clearest explanation of the gospel, which is the heart of what all the Bible is about. And Romans 8 is Mount Everest. It is... uh, arguably the most glorious of all the passages in the Bible simply because of what it says about God's heart and God's plan for his people uh, through his son. And so we want to look again at verses 12 through 14 today and think about uh, what Paul has to say to us. He's already said in the book of Romans that the gospel is about the fact that Jesus is an able and willing savior for sinners which means he's an able and willing Savior for me and for you. And that's good news. But it also means that because not everyone is saved, it means that there has to be, on the part of sinners, a desire to be saved from sin. Not just saved from the penalty of sin, but truly saved from sin. And so what Paul does is he talks about how God sent his son Jesus... To live a life we could never live. To achieve a perfect righteousness. To die the death that we deserve to die. To be the propitiation, as the Bible says, for our sins. Or the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. Then he rose from the dead and he offers salvation to all those who repent and believe. And so to believe obviously means to entrust ourselves to him. Repent means that I go from... Embracing sin and thinking sin is the path to happiness to wanting to be rid of sin and believing that God is the path to true happiness. And so what Paul is talking about here is that for all of us who've repented and believed in Jesus, we have a new position before God. We're no longer under God's wrath, but we stand in grace. And we also are new persons. We're not the old person we used to be, where sin rules and reigns over us, and we're in the domain of darkness. We've been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and we're actually ruled and reigned over by the Holy Spirit. We have a new person, we're a new man, the Bible says, and and yet there's still something within us the Bible calls the flesh, that is just like the person we were before we were saved. That is like a dethroned king that's still in the realm of the kingdom. And he's trying to regain the throne. And he's fighting to regain reign the throne in our lives. But we have a new position before God. We're new persons. But we have also a new power in our lives. The Holy Spirit, God himself, lives within each of us who have entrusted ourselves to Jesus. And so what Paul says here in these short verses Is meant to be understood in in light of all of that, that what he's talking about is in light of your new position and being a new person and having a new power, this is what life should look like for you in your pursuit of your happiness in God. And he couches what we're going to talk about today with, at the beginning of the chapter, he talks about there's no condemnation in Christ. At the end of the chapter, there's no separation from God's love. But in between, he talks about the fact there's no complacency, meaning I do not simply ignore the sin in my life. I don't embrace the sin in my life. I don't act like sin in my life is no big deal because I've been reconciled to a holy God who wants me to experience his love and show his love. And therefore, holiness is an important thing. So in Romans Eight verses 12 through 14 Paul says this so then brethren we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you are living according to the flesh you must die but if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body you will live for all who are being led by the spirit of God these are sons of God that last phrase, being led by the Spirit, we typically think about being led by the Spirit in terms of, uh, should I marry this person or not? Should I take this job or not? Um, Those kinds of things. This verse highlights the fact that the primary leading of the Spirit is in regard to putting to death the deeds of the body, meaning putting to death the evil deeds, putting to death sin in our lives, the pursuit of holiness. And he highlights the fact that whether or not we want to do that is really a life and death issue because he says, if you're living, in verse, verse 13, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. That death doesn't mean physical death. All of us will die physically. He's talking about eternal death. If if your life is all about just pursuing your fleshly desires, he's saying then the ultimate result of that will be eternal death. He's talking to a church full of professing Christians. But he knows that every church typically has people in it that profess to be Christians but aren't truly Christians. That's why Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares. And so he can talk to a church full of professing Christians and say, be careful you don't fall into this category. The category of someone who professes Christ but isn't really fighting sin, doesn't really care about sin, doesn't really uh, seek to put sin to death. But make sure that you're of the kind, he says, that by the Spirit are seeking to put to death the deeds of the body. Then you will live. And he doesn't mean just physical life, he means eternal life. You will enjoy uh, God's promise of eternal life. And so I want to talk some more about the issue of happiness, that's why the title of this part of the series is Holy and Happy, um, because the reality is, whether or not you pursue your happiness and pursue it in the right way is going to determine whether or not you're truly a loving person. We tend to think that, well, if someone's pursuing their happiness, they must not be pursuing love. Well, they may not be pursuing love if they're pursuing happiness in the wrong way way, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. I mean, if you look around all of us in here, or if you go outside and you look around Costa Mesa or California or across our nation, and if you ask any person, what are you doing, Um, they could easily simply say, I'm pursuing my happiness, because that's what they're doing, because that's what we naturally do. We all pursue our happiness, either by pursuing certain pleasures, or avoiding certain pain. We're pursuing our happiness. If I ask you this week, what did you do this week? You could say, I pursued my happiness. And I would know that you were telling me the truth, because that's what we all are doing. We're pursuing our happiness. Why is there a war in Ukraine? Because people are pursuing their happiness. Why are people, uh, some of the elites, pursuing what is called the Great Reset? As they're pursuing their happiness. What is all this um, talk about and emphasis on transgenderism? It's about the pursuit of happiness. Dylan Mulvaney is pursuing his happiness. What about all the people that are moving out of California because they don't like various things about what's going on in California? They're pursuing their happiness. And in one sense, that's natural. In another sense, That's entirely appropriate. The question is, then what's the problem? Is that we can pursue our happiness in ways that God never intended and will keep us from being the loving people that he has called us and created us to be. Albert Einstein said, a table, a chair, a bowl of fruit, and a violin. What else does a man need to be happy? Now, maybe he was just talking about enjoying the common things of life and none of us would take issue with that all of us would probably say something similar but if that was an ultimate question the bible would say um, what does a person need to be happy god and holiness and because we're sinners we need grace and faith in jesus all those things are important if we're really going to be happy. As I've said before, God created us to be holy and happy, which is another way of saying he created us to glorify him and enjoy him. It all works together. So let me just ask this question at the beginning, just practically. If you could ask God this morning to help you put to get death one sin in your life consistently on a day-by-day basis what would that be what sin would you choose if God would say I'm going to give you special grace to overcome this sin more regularly what would that look like if we have trouble thinking about any sin that we really would like to have God help us put to death more, then that should be a red flag. That means we're not thinking very much about sin like we need to. We, we ought to be able to say, yeah, I, this comes to mind and this comes to mind and this comes to mind. I would really like to see God help me overcome this sin more in my life. And so we have to recognize that there's a connection between my fighting sin And being happy. That's the whole point of Spurgeon's um, quote there that I've included. Holiness is the royal road to happiness. The death of sin is the life of joy. Paul is talking about the death of sin. He's saying, as Christians, we are to pursue putting to death the evil deeds of the body, putting to death sin, which means... Pursue your happiness, pursue your happiness in God, pursue your happiness in spiritual things. Well, last week we talked about the fact that there's no no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ, which means you are not defined by your sin. You're defined by your Savior who died for your sin. Secondly, there's no separation. You're not defined by your suffering, that you can suffer in great ways as a Christian and still be loved perfectly by God. Then finally, there's no complacency, which means sin is not your friend. Now, that last point, sin is not your friend, leads us to the next three things that I want to talk about this morning, or at least begin talking about, is feed, fix, and fight. That's the idea of how do we uh, fight sin in our lives. The feed refers to we feed our minds on the truth of God. Fix refers to we fix our hope on God. And fight means I fight by saying no to sin and yes to love. And that those are the ways we fight sin. the picture that I have up here is of a tree. Now, why do I have a picture of a tree? Well, I believe it's one way of trying to picture what what it is we're actually fighting. When we talk about putting to death the deeds of the body... Are fighting sin? What are we really talking about? Well, the Bible talks about all kinds of sins. But I think the Bible talks in ways that gives us an understanding of what we're really fighting. There are three parts to a tree. The roots, the trunk, and then what is called the canvas or the crest. You might call it the fruit of the tree. I would argue, and we'll talk more about this later, that the root of sin is actually unbelief. All of our sins arise out of the fact that we don't believe God. It's a lack of faith. It's the opposite of faith. We're failing to trust God in the ways we should. Then the trunk of the tree comes out of the unbelief. So unbelief is wrong thinking and wrong believing, which leads to the trunk of the tree, which is wrong desires and wrong hopes. I'm hoping in something that I shouldn't be hoping in. If I'm thinking wrong and I'm believing wrong, then I'll start putting my hope in the wrong things. That's what idolatry is. I'm putting my hope for help and happiness in the wrong things. And then what happens? There's branches and fruit comes out of that unbelief and that idolatry, which are wrong patterns of thought, wrong words, and wrong actions. So if I'm not thinking right and I'm not hoping right or desiring right, I'm not going to speak right and act right. And part of the problem with our fighting of sin is we never address the trunk or the roots. We're just addressing the fruit. Okay, I need to stop saying wrong things. I need to stop doing wrong things. But I never ask myself, why am I saying wrong things? Why am I doing wrong things? What is the root of it all? What, what is the support of, of it all. And so, as we talk about this, I, I want to h- encourage us to think along those lines and to see really what Paul is talking about when he says, By the Spirit, you are to put to death the deeds of the body, or to put to death sin. One of the fascinating things about this is, on the one hand, these verses are highlighting the fact that this is something that God has to do. The Holy Spirit is God. So he says, Put to death sin. By the Spirit, which means God has to put to death sin. But he says, you put to death sin, which means you're responsible for it. I'm responsible for it. I'm responsible for it, but God has to do it. If you go back to the book of Joshua, it's really interesting. You read through Joshua, and this is at a point in Israel's history where they cross the Jordan. They go into the promised land. Moses has died. And God tells Joshua, I'm going to give Israel the promised land. And then he tells him, you're going to give Israel the promised land. He tells them, you're going to go in and fight these nations and overcome them. And then it says that God actually fought on their behalf. So the question is, who gave the promised land to Israel? Was it Joshua or was it God? Yes. Who fought? Was it Israel or was it God? Yes. It's both. If you read it very carefully, it says God's going to give it. God's going to fight for you. Then he says, Joshua, you're going to give it to them and you guys are going to fight. And so that's the same thing that's going on here. Paul is saying, there's this responsibility that I'm supposed to take for my sin. I can't just say, you know, I guess God will deliver me from this sin one of these days. No, I need to take responsibility for my words. I need to take responsibility for my actions. I need to take responsibility for my wrong patterns of thought that I'm not addressing. Not simply say, well, you know, I can't overcome this without God, so I guess I'll just wait until he does something. And, And that is not the way to embrace the idea that I'm dependent on God. To be dependent on God means I actually do something that expresses my dependence on God. And that's what Paul is encouraging us to do here. Now, so he says we are to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that I want to talk about today that I think is important is we have a problem with pursuing holiness in unholy ways. When it talks about uh, not living your life according to the flesh, that could be, I don't care about holiness. And I'm just going to live my life to be happy as I define it. That would be a living according to the flesh. But it's also living according to the flesh if I say, I'm going to pursue holiness, but I'm not going to do it God's way. Which means I'm going to Pursue it in unholy ways. Now, why is that important? It's important because the one group that the Lord Jesus spoke most harshly about was the Pharisees in the New Testament. And he was continually at conflict with the re- religious leaders in general and with the Pharisees in particular. The Pharisees were a group within Judaism that, was, that they were very concerned about holiness. In fact, the word Pharisee means separate one. They were like uh, modern-day fundamentalists, at least at least the caricature that we have of fundamentalism in the sense that you know, we're going to separate from everyone who isn't like us, and we're going to try to pursue this holiness. We're going to be separate. Um, they were very concerned about holiness. They were very religious. And so we misunderstand the Pharisees if we say they just didn't care about holiness. No, they cared deeply about holiness. But they pursued it in very unholy ways. So much so that Jesus could say uh, about the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Now think about that. These people were considered to be the holiest people in Israel at the time. They had a reputation for pursuing holiness. They thought of themselves as pursuing holiness. And Jesus calls them sons of hell. That's an amazing thing. That would have been shocking to every person in Israel. You're telling us that these people that are supposedly... The ones who are pursuing holiness more than anybody else are truly unholy, a son of hell. Think about, um, for instance, the um, terrorists who flew the planes into the uh, two towers. What were they pursuing? You could argue they were pursuing holiness. That they believe that America is of the devil that America needs to fall and that by doing the will of Allah, they're being holy and fighting the holy war. And by giving their lives in that way, they were actually being holy. The Bible would say they were pursuing holiness in an unholy way. You would turn to um, Luke 11. I just want to point out some things this morning along these lines, because I realize that it's very easy for me. I grew up in church, and I grew up with a heavy emphasis on fundamentalism, separatism, that kind of thing. And so I know what it is to be very legalistically minded. I know what it is to be very pharisaical in my thinking, because I was brought up that way. And I can see how it's very easy for us as Christians, even to look at the pursuit of holiness like the Pharisees did. And I think that's one reason why we have the Pharisees talked about so much in the New Testament. And so I just want to highlight some things about how the Pharisees pursued holiness and how the religious people in general pursued holiness in uh, the first century Jewish culture and how it can apply to us. And the first thing is you can pursue holiness by ignoring the big things and majoring on the minors. Ignoring the big things and majoring on the minors. Um, just yesterday, Jan and I were talking about the situation with a friend, um, at least a former friend, um, goes to another church still. And we were talking about the fact that uh, this person made a comment one time about the fact that... Um, she and another woman in the church that she goes to had agreed not to speak to each other. They didn't like each other, couldn't stand each other, and had just agreed that at church they would just walk past each other and not not acknowledge each other, not speak to each other and but go there to worship God Jesus says in luke eleven forty two what do you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. The Pharisees were very conscientious about tithing, giving 10% of what they had. But Jesus said, you don't care about really loving God or justice, which means loving people. Which means, in our context, in light of that illustration, you can be someone who's very conscientious about going to church, and yet very not conscientious at all about loving the people at church. Go to church and still be at enmity. Hate the person worshiping beside you, not forgiving them, not pursuing reconciliation, and... And yet think you're pursuing holiness. I'm going to church. I'm giving my tithe. I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing holiness, just like God wants me to. And Jesus said, that's not pursuing holiness. Holiness is about love, love for God and, and love for people. And what we do should be funneling us and moving us toward loving God and loving people. And so if we stop short of that, then we're pursuing holiness in a very unholy way. And we have to be careful of that. If you would, turn to Matthew 19. Another thing that the Pharisees would do is that they would ignore the spirit of the law and focus on the letter of the law. There's a story um, that's told in a song by Ray Stevens. I've mentioned this before. It's called a song about the first self-righteous church of uh, Pascagoula, Mississippi, which isn't very far from where my dad grew up. And the story includes a reference to a woman in that church, the fir- first self-righteous church of Pascagoula, and this woman's name is um, Bertha Better Than You. And the song is all about how people in the church were looking a certain way on the outside, but in reality there weren't anything like uh, what they looked like. And Bertha Better Than You uh, is a picture of someone who can feel very happy about their pursuit of holiness by simply looking at the letter of the law rather than thinking about what is really the spirit of the law. The Pharisees were like that. Um, there's a um, a ruler who we don't know if he was a Pharisee or not, but he would certainly... Uh, expressed the kind of things that the Pharisees would have expressed. When he comes to Jesus, it's called the rich young ruler, and he says, Lord, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do to go to heaven? And Jesus tells him, keep the commandments, which is interesting in and of itself. He doesn't say, trust in me. He says, keep the commandments, which was meant to help him to see that he needed to trust in Jesus. And he, the man says, which ones? And so, Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it says, the young man said, all these things I have kept, what am I lacking? He was saying, according to the letter of the law, I have never murdered anybody, I've never committed adultery. And that's what the Pharisees would have said. The exact same thing. Well, what Jesus does is he basically exposes the fact that he hadn't even kept the first commandment, much less any of the others. The first commandment is, you shall not have any other gods before me. And so Jesus tells him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. The Bible says he was rich. And he went away grieved. Why? Because his riches were his God. It's what he looked to for help. It's what he looked to for his happiness. And therefore, Jesus was exposing the fact that you haven't even kept the first one, much less any of these other ones. But I want to make the point is that we can be like Bertha better than you if we simply look at things on the surface. I can look at serial killers and say, well, at least I'm not that. And we forget that Jesus said, if you kill people in your heart, then you're a murderer. If you're angry enough to hurt someone, then you're a murderer in your heart. The spirit of the law has to be taken into consideration. And so if my pursuit of holiness simply leads me to make sure I'm following the letter of the law and I'm not concerned about the spirit of it, then I'm pursuing holiness in an unholy way. Uh, if you would, turn to Matthew 23, uh, if you'd like to. Uh, another way that the Pharisees thought about holiness is, and this is very, all these are very closely related in different ways, but they were concerned about how you look on the outside, but not concerned about their own heart. And so the Lord Jesus would address this in various ways. It's kind of like if if the Pharisees were around today, they would love Facebook and Instagram. Because that's where you can put your best face forward. And you can hide all the ugly stuff in your life. And that's part of the problem is, um, like they say, young teenage girls will look at Instagram and they'll look at Facebook and it will send them into depression. And it will point them toward suicide and eating disorders. Because all they see online... Or pictures of beautiful people and people having fun and people living the good life. And they think, wow, my life is nothing compared to that. And my looks are nothing compared to that. And therefore, I must not be worth living. Life must not be worth living. There's all kinds of destructive things when we simply focus on the outside and not look at the heart. And that's why in verse 25 Of Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrite is an actor, someone who's putting on a show. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so Jesus is saying that if your holiness doesn't go any further than your Facebook page or your Instagram posts or what people can see on the outside, then you're pursuing holiness in an unholy way because you're not concerned about what's going on in your heart, which is what really is going on in your life, what's going on in your heart. Then if you look, would look at John chapter 8, I have to go through these rather quickly. There's so much more I could say, but at least gives you a taste of the kinds of things the Pharisees were doing and thinking that the Lord Jesus was so straightforward in condemning because he knew that it was not going to bear the fruit that they argued for Another aspect of what the Pharisees would think and do is that they condemned others while showing mercy to themselves. And in one sense, they were more concerned about putting to death other people's sins than putting to death their own sins. In John chapter 8, you've got the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. And so the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, um, excuse me, brings this woman to Jesus. And says in verse four, teachers, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, excuse me. Yes, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And that's when Jesus stoops down. He starts writing in uh, the sand on the ground. And we're not sure exactly what he wrote, but he probably wrote different sins. And it says they began to uh, realize when Jesus said, Those among you without sin, let them cast the first stone. They evidently were convicted enough to walk away. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you, and lets her go, but tells her, do not sin again. Obviously not anymore in the absolute sense, but in terms of what she was doing. Well, the reality is that um, Jesus said, For a reason, before you correct someone and try to get the speck out of their eye, get the log out of your own. Why did he say that? Well, because the log and the splinter are made of the same thing. And so basically he was saying, make sure you have understood how you do the same thing and need mercy from God before you try to correct someone else. We go to someone and we try to, you know, put to death their sin by telling them what's wrong with them. And we've never made the connection that I do the same thing, maybe not in the same way. But the spirit of what I do shows up just in ways that are just like what they do. And so um, we can be very quick to find issue with other people and be re- very ready to help them put to death sin in their life because it's causing us trouble. It's aggravating us. It's um, making life difficult for us. And yet, we're not making the connection that, um, yeah, I do the same thing, and I need God's mercy too. And so, uh, Jesus was doing that for the Pharisees because they were ready to con- deal with putting to death this person's sin literally put her sin to death. And Jesus said, you're not realizing that all of you need to be stoned. All of you deserve to be stoned. And if you don't recognize that, then you're no in no position to deal with this person's sin. So that was another aspect of their holiness. It was a holiness that drove them, or their pursuit of holiness, that drove them to be very concerned about other people's sin. But... Blind, ignorant, unconcerned about their own sin, and that's part of what's going on in our culture with CRT, um, which is very much about a victim mentality that just focuses on focuses on everybody else, how they've hurt me and offended me, and how uh, I deserve something from them because of how they've sinned against me. It says nothing about how I'm just like them in some sense, and how if they deserve condemnation, I do too. I need the mercy of God, and they need the mercy of God. It doesn't talk about that at all. It's all about I'm just a victim of someone else's sin, and they need to be condemned, and I need to be exalted. That's what CRT is all about. And so our, our society is uh, rife with the air of, yeah, we, we want to cancel people, we want to condemn people, other people's sins and put to death other people's sins, even if we have to put them to death. But our pursuit of our own holiness isn't like that at all. Well, if you would also look at um, Matthew 9, another way that the Pharisees would pursue their holiness was basically to try to avoid people that they thought might make them unholy. Now, the reality is there, there's some truth and the idea that Paul could say at one point, bad company corrupts good morals. And the Proverbs talks about the fact that you shouldn't hang out with and run around with people who are going to lead you into sin. But Jesus wasn't doing that. And so what we find happening in Matthew 9 is Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners And the Pharisees asked the disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus hears what they're asking, and he says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The problem isn't being careful of who I'm embracing as my good friends and who I want to be like. That's what the Proverbs warns against. That's what Paul is talking about when he says uh, bad company corrupts good morals. Jesus is pursuing the good of the tax collectors and sinners, wanting them to repent of their sin, not join them in their sin. That's all the difference in the world. The Pharisees, though, said, you know what? The way I pursue my holiness is I just avoid all the people around me that I don't think are worthy of my presence, that are really bad folks, the really bad people. I avoid them. And then I know that I'm holy in God's sight. Pharisees could not connect with the tax collectors and, and, quote, sinners. They could not believe that they were in the same boat. And so they just separated themselves, and that's why they were called separatists. And so we have to be careful of thinking that pursuing holiness is just avoiding people that I think might get some dirt on me. And that's really failing to see ourselves as we should. Well, in Matthew 15, if you want to flip over there, another aspect of what the Pharisees did was, and this is a way that makes pursuing holiness a little easier. They made up their own sin list. And when you make up your own sin list, you typically make a sin list that you can keep relatively easily. Because if your holiness is based on keeping your own sin list up to date and not God's sin list, you can feel a lot better about yourself. When I was growing up, the circles that I was exposed to and ran around in, in in certain ways were circles that would say no movies, um, no secular music, uh, no dancing, no hair over your ears if you were a guy, um, things like that, as if that 's what about what holiness is all about it 's about avoiding all those kinds of things, and if you did that, then you were pursuing holiness well. Again, that's a list of man-made sins. It's not wrong to go to the movie. It may be wrong to go to some movies, depending on what it's all about. It's not wrong to dance, and inherently, but there may be some dances that are sinful. The point is, we can make up sin lists that aren't found in the Bible. And that's why Jesus could rebuke um, the Pharisees in Matthew 15 and say... First of all, the, the Pharisees asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. The Pharisees had this ritual of hand washing, which wasn't something that God commanded, but it was something that they thought, this is important, and this, this is how you are holy. You do this. We kind of made it up, but this is how you be holy. And Jesus says, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your Tradition. And then he goes on to give an illustration of what that looked like for them. To them, they had their own sin list. And the reality is we can do the same thing. We can make up our own sin list. And if we keep it ourselves, we feel good about ourselves. If other people break it, then we are ready to condemn them. Well, let me move on for time's sake. If you want to uh, look at uh, John 5, Jesus... Uh, addresses another thing, and this is one of the most important aspects. The last two that I'm going to t- touch on today are some of the, two of the most important ones, I think, for various reasons. In John 5, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath day. And he tells him to pick up his pallet and walk. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, see that. The Jews, as they're called, and they tell they say to this guy, "What are you doing carrying your pallet on the Sabbath day? You're working. You shouldn't be doing that." And it says that the man told him, "Well, Jesus uh, told me to do it." And it says, verse eighteen: "For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God." his own father. Well, if you think about that, what's really going on is they believe that he was sinning. So they determined that they were going to kill sin with sin because what they did was sin. And what they were plotting to do was sin, but they felt justified because they believed that what Jesus was doing was sin. So, It's amazing how often that we as sinners can think that our sin is justified because we're trying to kill someone else's sin. Think about um, Riley Gaines is the Kentucky swimmer, the woman swimmer who's been speaking out against the trans swimmer Leah Thomas. And she spoke one time recently and was assaulted. Now, I believe that those who assaulted her felt justified in assaulting her. Whether or not they would have considered it sin or not, I don't know. If they did, they'd probably say, well, my sin is justified by her sin. Her sin deserves this response, even if it is sin, even if it is wrong. My sin is justified in trying to kill her sin. And the reality is, we do that all the time. People sin against us, and then we become bitter and angry, and we say things and do things in response to their sin against us, but we feel fully justified. In fact, we feel holy because we're addressing their sin. See, we're concerned about sin, and you sinned against me. And we feel justified in fighting their sin with our sin. And that's what the Pharisees did. That's what religious leaders did. That's why Jesus was crucified. And that's why... We can pursue holiness in very unholy ways. Then lastly, in Luke chapter 18, you have the story of um, the Pharisee and the tax collector that go into the temple to pray. And the Pharisee stands up and prays to himself. The Bible says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And then it says, the tax collector said, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, the tax collector, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, if if God were to ask us uh, when we die and go to heaven, why should I let you into heaven? If we were to say something like what the Pharisees said, well, I wasn't like other people. I did this and this and this. Jesus would look at us and say, I never knew you. But if we say what the tax collector said, it's only by your mercy, only by your mercy in Jesus. I have nothing in my hand to bring other than my sin and my failure. But your son died for people like me, and I entrust myself to him. The Pharisees were very confident that they would be accepted because of their pursuit of holiness. And even when we are pursuing holiness as we should, we should never think we've arrived at the point where God should receive us because we've pursued holiness like we should. Jesus says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Which means you can't pursue holiness without humility. You can't be a proud pursuer of holiness. And to me, that just exposes my heart terribly because I am so proud. And I have to put that to death. And so I've spent all this time this morning highlighting these things, not to make us all feel bad, but to warn us of our tendency to pursue holiness in unholy ways. Number one. And number two, to help us to know that those kinds of attitudes are part of the sin we're to put to death. It's part of our sinful thought patterns and tendencies that we need to put to death as we fight sin. And if we don't aren't aware of our tendencies there we can easily become pharisees can easily be pursuing holiness in very unholy ways and think we're somehow loving god and loving people when we're far from it and so it's god's kindness to tell us these things it's god's love to show us these realities and next week we'll get more into dealing with those three aspects of the sin Um, But it's very important that we realize that there is a kind of pursuit of holiness that undermines everything that we're going to be talking about next time. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you're so kind, so merciful, so loving, that you tell us the truth, even when it exposes us, it exposes our pride, it exposes our our wrong pursuit of holiness in so many ways, our unloving ways of thinking that we're loving, our unholy ways of thinking that we're pursuing holiness, so that we might truly be humble, so that we might truly depend on the Holy Spirit, so that we might truly pursue holiness by grace through faith in Jesus and dependence on the Holy Spirit. So I pray that The fruit of this would not be condemnation because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but there would be appropriate conviction because it convicts me. And I think of the reality of what we've highlighted from your word this morning. But I pray that that conviction would move us to truly desire the grace we need to fight sin in the way you've called us to and feeding on the truth and fixing our hope on you In saying no to sin and yes to what you say, love truly looks like. Please continue to teach us and help us. Father, please prepare us for the Lord's Supper, which is the celebration of what you've done for us in Christ, which is the foundation of fighting sin for all of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.